Hello everybody, and welcome back to The Debrief, where we run down the biggest stories of Dartmouth every other week. My name is Heath Monsma, and I'm glad to be back after a winter hiatus from podcasting with three great stories. In the first one, producer Claire Betzer sat down with Associate Executive Editor Adriana James Rodel, who covered the release of regular decisions for the class of 2027. They discussed the new admission statistics, changes in application process, and the profile of the new class. So I'm here with Adriana, who's a writer for The D. Um, Adriana, thanks so much for being on the podcast this week. Thank you, Claire. And could you tell us a little bit about the story that you covered? Yeah, so I just covered essentially Dartmouth's admins during the regular decision process um, and just got to speak with a few students who were thankfully admitted. One of them was actually an early decision applicant. So Dartmouth historically has one of the lowest acceptance rates in the country. And was this year's acceptance rate any different? And essentially, it always goes down like every year, which is not surprising since Dartmouth's, Dartmouth's in the Ivy League. But this year, they accepted 1,173 members, class 2027, drawing from about a little over 28,000 applicants, um, which is the largest applicant pool the college has ever seen. Actually marks the college's third consecutive year with a 6% acceptance rate. And based off of the kids that you talk to and maybe some stats that you have, what stands out about the class of 27? So I think one thing that really stands out is that this year's admittance pool, each person that I asked, I asked whether a COVID played a factor in the decision making and all of them said no, which is, I guess, great to hear uh, coming from especially the class of 2025 when COVID was very much still prevalent. And Dartmouth has been criticized in recent years about its lack of diversity, equity, and inclusivity in its admissions practices. Can you speak at all to whether the class of 27 challenges these criticisms? Especially during this year's admission cycle, there was improvements to financial aid because of the college's new call to lead campaign, which included an increase of $149 million in aid for undergraduates, just allowed for more allocation of scholarship money, which this increases the amount of people that can come that have financial insecurity. So for example, like Dartmouth is one of only seven institutions in the country among like Amherst, Brown, Harvard, MIT, Princeton, and Yale that follows a 100% demonstrated need for all students regardless of their citizenship status and follow like a need blind policy. So you said that you spoke with four students. Mm-hmm. Um, who were admitted, what did they have to say about their college admissions process and were they excited to come to Dartmouth? I mean, I guess they're all just exceptional students. So they found the college admissions process to be a little stressful, but overall worked in their favor. But they were all excited to come to college, were excited things about first year trips and things of that nature. Um, One of the students, Alan Lamb, is a first gen um, and just the resources the college had to offer also played a factor in his decision making. Alan Lamb also said that he enjoyed kind of the essay writing process. He said that he was test optional, and so I think Dartmouth maybe is focused on essays in in terms of their application and that weighing a lot, Alan said, I think worked in his favor too. Well, I definitely remember the essay writing and the application process, and I don't envy these kids because it just keeps getting harder and harder. Well, Adriana, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast to talk about the class of 2027. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Claire. Next, co-host Elvon Bayer and news writer Varun Swaminathan take a deep dive into the debate surrounding abortion in the state of New Hampshire. This comes on the heels of the State House of Representatives voting to pass a bill ensuring abortion rights before 24 weeks into a pregnancy. 
Well, this is a victory for the pro-choice activists in New Hampshire. The bill faces a tough challenge next week as it goes in front of the Republican-controlled Senate who rejected a similar proposal last month. I'm Ella Von Beyer, and I'm here with Varun Swaminathan talking about New Hampshire's House voting to protect abortion rights. Varun, could you tell me why this is significant and kind of give me a summary of the article you wrote? Sure. So ever since last summer, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, we've seen a lot of abortion legislation across the country in a lot of different types of states, whether it's states that are primarily pro-choice who are voting to codify, or states that are pro-life that are voting to increase the bans or um, other other weak restrictions. So uh, about two weeks ago, um, there were eight abortion bills that came up for votes in the New Hampshire State House. Only two of them were passed. Uh, one of which uh, would codify abortion before 24 weeks, and the other would remove civil and criminal penalties for doctors who perform abortions after 24 weeks. So the New Hampshire State House is interesting because it's very closely divided. There's 201 Republicans and 198 Democrats, but these were Democratic-led efforts, and the majority of Democrats supported them, supported them and the majority of people who voted for both bills were Democrats. Uh, so it was kind of a pleasant surprise for a lot of pro-choice voices that it made it, its way through. Um, obviously, in the Senate now, it's going to be tougher because it's a Republican-led Senate. Uh, but it's definitely relevant for Dartmouth. Obviously, we're in New Hampshire. There's a lot of young people. It's an important issue to a lot of people. And it's also important because it plays into the national conversation about the future of abortion in America. So the issue of abortion is normally seen as one where you have two opposing sides, I think. You know, one is pro-choice. One is pro-life, and it seems that there isn't much middle ground. In speaking to both Republican and Democrat representatives, did you find there to be some middle ground? Yeah, so I think one of the coolest things about being in New Hampshire is the fact that the majority of voters are independent. Uh, We have a Republican governor who publicly identifies as pro-choice. So just all in all, the state really likes compromise and supports independent, nuanced opinions. So when I was talking to state representatives, um, two in particular, Representative Ross Berry, who serves, um, I believe, Manchester, and then Professor Muirhead, who's a professor here, but also serves as a state representative. Uh, both of them showed that they were really willing to talk to the other side. I mean, I talked to Representative Berry while he was driving. I could hear, um, you know, the indicators in the background. But he was, you know, really willing to engage and have a conversation. He described himself as not an absolutist on the issue. Um, he's a Republican who voted against the 24-week codification. He voted against repealing the state's civil and criminal penalties. And when I asked him about it, he explained that he made a promise to his voters in the last election that he would not touch any abortion legislation. And so I pressed him on that a little, and I asked him why he made that promise. And he said that he thinks the law today is extraordinarily reasonable. That was the wording he chose, reasonable. He said that banning at six months he thought was a good place to draw the line because uh, it's the point of viability. Uh, Less than 1% of abortions take place in the third trimester. And even in the third trimester, New Hampshire law provides four exceptions for life of the mother of fetal abnormality. And so despite being a Republican who voted against both of those bills, He really did want to find a way where we could settle this issue. And while both sides might not be delighted, they agree, they can agree that it's a good balance. So I interviewed him first, and then I talked to Professor Muirhead later. 
Uh, when I talked to Professor Muirhead, I actually talked to him a little bit about what Representative Barry had said, and obviously they know each other, and they serve in the state house together. And Professor Muirhead thought that what Representative Barry said was actually really brave. He told me, I believe that I believe the exact quote was, that's what leadership looks like, where you're finding some sort of balance, even though both sides might not always you know, agree on every part of it. He is looking for a place where we can have some sort of compromise. And that, I think, was the coolest part of writing this article, that abortion is, as you said, really two sides. Um, that's what the conversation is framed as. But in New Hampshire, we're actually trying to find a way where both of those sides can come together in a bipartisan manner. And Professor Muir had said that even though he doesn't think that drawing the line at 24 weeks is fair because it puts a doctor between, uh, it puts the government between a doctor and a mother, he did see that there would be some place where you need to make a concession. And given the fact that less than 1% of cases are after 24 weeks, he said that that's a concession he would probably be okay making if he could make sure that before 24 weeks was absolutely protected by state law. Was that conversation personally enlightening for you as well? I think it absolutely was. Um, I mean, I haven't spent a ton of time with the issue of abortion. And a lot of the times I think the voices that I hear tend to be pretty on the outside. But just sitting in his office, it was on his couch, he was sitting across from me, and we were just, you know, casually talking about how we can come together and how both sides do actually want to come together, at least in New Hampshire, I think was really personally both enlightening and optimistic. I mean, I think rhetoric in the country is just a lot of times very polarizing. It was just really refreshing. And on that national level, do you think New Hampshire could kind of be paving the way for a bipartisan approach to abortion? I hope that New Hampshire can serve as a guideline in a lot of different areas. I think that the way that New Hampshire goes about conversations between both sides is really good. Uh, So that remains to be seen, but I think it would definitely be good for the country. And outside of state representatives, I think you also spoke to organizers of both the pro-choice and the pro-life movement. What was that experience like? I talked to the president of New Hampshire Right to Life, uh, Jason Hennessy. He definitely sees the issue incredibly black and white, and so I don't think bipartisanship would necessarily come from him, but then again, he's not a state representative, he's an organized interest, and his job is to lobby the inter- lobby his personal interest. The one thing that I would say was really enlightening about my conversation with him was how wholeheartedly he believed in the issue. I lived in Massachusetts my whole life, which is overwhelmingly pro-choice. Uh, being on the Dartmouth campus, I think, is also pretty overwhelmingly pro-choice. Um, young people tend to be. I think mentally, I kind of had this idea of what a pro-life organizer would look like, and he was not that. I thought that pro-life, you know, meant almost malevolent and to the point, uh, contradictory to the point, to a fault. And he really believes that what he's doing is the right thing to do. When he talks about protecting the life of children, he really truly believes that those are children. I asked him about how public opinion is against him and how he responds to that, and he likened what they're doing to, you know, the abolition movement where public opinion was completely turned against him. And at first, I was a little thrown off by that comparison. I mean, it's not every day that you compare yourself to an abolitionist, but after talking to Professor Muirhead about it, I kind of realized that is exactly how they see their position. They see themselves, especially in New Hampshire, as the minority, but they're fighting for what they believe is right, and that's not an easy position to be in, even if you don't agree with them. And then when talking to the pro-choice organizer, uh, I really wanted to get to the bottom of third-term abortions with her because that's 
that's obviously where the band starts. Mm-hmm. And what she told me was that she has never seen a case in which a mother just elected to have an abortion in the third trimester. I mean, realistically, why would a mother do that? If you carry a baby for six months, you've maybe even picked out a name and you are expecting to carry the baby to term. And so she told me she's never seen an elected abortion in the third trimester. Anytime it's happened, it's a devastating thing to happen. And it's because there was a fetal abnormality or the life of the mother was endangered. So yeah, talking to the organizers was really insightful. They don't work with the legislation as much. And a lot of what they had to say came from a more emotional place. But I think that's not a bad thing at all. Um, They really believe in the work they're doing. And that is admirable. Great. Thank you so much, Varun. It was a really insightful article. I encourage everyone listening, if you haven't read it already, to go read it. Thank you so much for your time, Varun. Yeah, thank you. It was nice to be here. Finally, producer Eliana Stanford sat down with news writers Shayna Hahn and Charlotte Hampton, who provided the first in-depth coverage of Dartmouth's announcement that they had discovered improperly cataloged native remains in the Hood's collection. The sacred bones had been used as teaching aids in anthropology classes as recently as last year and Han and Hampton discussed their process in trying to ascertain how the mistake was made in the first place, as well as characterize the outrage of a Native community who suffered many injustices at the hands of this college. Hi, my name is Sheena Han, I'm a 25. Hi, my name is Charlotte Hampton, and I'm a 26. We wrote our article about the college discovering Native American remains in the Hoods collection. I think it was really important to understand the way Native American students and the Native American community on campus were responding to this. Um, Obviously, as an institution with such a sordid history with Native American people, as a school that's founded on the belief in assimilation, we have a specific obligation to think critically about what this means to our community members and what we can do to support the Native American community at Dartmouth. Can you touch a little bit more on the reaction of Native American community here as well as the uh, college's efforts to kind of reconcile? There were some community dinners held. I know that Phil Hanlon was at the initial announcement to the Native American community that the college had found the remains in their collection. I was feeling like President Phil Hanlon left the room too early, didn't give enough time to this issue. Um, One student I talked to referred to the announcement as a, quote, slap in the face, which is at the beginning of our article. Yeah, Sheena, I don't know if you want to talk about the college's working group moving forward. Um, Yeah, I will also add that I did speak to Professor De Silva and Jamie Powell, who's the director of Indigenous Art for the Hood, who were both, I would say, very intentional about breaking the news to the Native community, and one of my sources, Sydney Hoos, who is a Native student who took the human osteology class and was handling Native American remains, was talking about how the Native students in that class were sat down for a personal conversation before um, they broke the news to the rest of the Native community and then to um, the Dartmouth community at large. And like while you were going about conducting interviews, especially with administration and the college, and I know you're talking about the uh, curator for the hood. What was like the level of transparency like? I will speak to my experience. I think Charlotte may have had a different <laughs> with the provost. Um, on my end, I will say that both Professor De Silva and uh, Jamie, who I spoke to, were very um, transparent about what happened. I think that they approached it with very much an attitude of wanting 
um, as much of the truth as they were aware of to get out there. I will give the provost credit for being very thoughtful in his answers. I think he didn't always feel equipped to respond to some of my questions as someone who's not Native American, who's not a legal scholar on NAGPRA, despite the fact that he is heading the NAGPRA working group at the college. And I also think that maybe one of the reasons he wasn't as forthcoming is because a lot of the plans for the college are very much in flux. Um, they've just created the job description for you know, an advisor to help with repatriation of the remains. So I think as we do a follow-up story, perhaps in the future, there will be a lot more for the college to say about what's next. I'm really looking forward to see if you guys write another follow-up article. Because yeah. I loved reading your piece, because I think it was very important. So it was very Thank cool. You. Thank you so much. That's all the news we had for this week. Tune in again two weeks from now for another episode of The Debriefed, and keep your eyes peeled for some upcoming special episodes. There are a few people that we want to thank in the making of this podcast. Thank you to our colleagues at the Dartmouth, Adriana James Rodel, Varun Swaminathan, Shayna Han, and Charlotte Hampton for amazing interviews, as well as our producers, Abby Hughes, Jack Coleman, Eliana Stanford, Claire Betzer, Quinn Hall, Ryan Penny, and last but not least, our new executive editor and editor-in-chief of the D, Kristen Chapman.